on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Mary Beth Witzel Bale is the city clerk in Madison, Wisconsin. She has spent the last 15 years running elections in that city. Here she is 11 years ago holding a mock election in 2011. She was trying to figure out how much extra time voters would need to cast their ballots in 2012 under the state's new voter ID law. I'm Mayor Beth Witzel-Bale, Madison City Clerk, and today we're having a mock election in the City County Building to time various scenarios with voter ID and figure out how to do the best practices for 2012 before we actually have an election. Witzel-Bale says she chose to do this work because she wanted to combat voting inequities in Madison. She encourages every new Wisconsin election clerk who comes to her for training to similarly find their why. Quote, they have to focus on why they are doing this work. What it comes down to is making voting accessible to those who are eligible to vote. That's why we keep showing up day after day. Her why is more important now than ever, because in 2020, Mary Beth contemplated not showing up. She almost quit. That's because after Election Day 2020, Mary Beth started to get death threats. They included online discussions contemplating which weapons to use against her. At one point, she says people spoke about lynching her. Mary Beth received so many threats that year that she began worrying about the safety of her election staff and her family. She screened visitors at the office and she kept the blinds closed at home. But ultimately, she decided to stay on the job for another five years. So Mary Beth Witzel-Bale will be on the job this election day. Across this country, staying in the job has not been easy for a lot of people. In New Mexico, people who claim to be voter fraud investigators have inundated election officials with an assortment of really unusual requests, like asking for images of all 130,000 ballots cast in 2020 and digital records on where those votes were cast. In Nevada, Republican activists have accused the registrar of accounting fake votes, and they have called for her to be fired or locked up, a familiar refrain. After threats against her and her family, she resigned in June. And she's not alone. Top elections officials in 10 of the 17 counties in Nevada have resigned, many after facing harassment and threats. We've seen a similar exodus in Pennsylvania and South Carolina and Texas, where 30 percent of election officials have left office since 2020. 30 percent. It was major news this summer when three Gillespie County elections officials in Texas resigned in August, leaving the county without any election staff just two months before Election Day. One of those officials said she resigned after being stalked repeatedly and receiving death threats related to the 2020 election. And that is what happened in a county that Trump won by 59 points in 2020. The job of administering an election in any county in America right now is exhausting and it is scary. So much so that the workers who are the backbone of our election infrastructure are on their way out the door. And that's intentional. Trump allies have targeted these officials to force them out of their jobs. It's working. The Brennan Center says that one in three election officials know someone who has left because of safety concerns. Clearly, what we are asking of these officials is a lot, more than it ever has been. 
Back in Wisconsin, the Dane County election clerk is a man named Scott McDonald. Dane County is one of two Wisconsin counties where Trump demanded a recount in 2020. Not coincidentally, both are Democratic counties in a deeply purple state. Earlier this week, I traveled to Wisconsin to talk to Scott McDonald to find out why exactly he's so worried. When did you start doing this job? Ten years ago. And, and like, what was it like ten years ago, this job? Oh, it was great. We had the first same-sex marriage license done here. We do marriages out on the front of the steps, and it was, it was fun. But it's become sort of a darker version of that now. I am worried about my staff. I'm worried about the staff across the hall. That's the city clerk's office. Yeah. They, there is an adequate security in this building. Uh, this building wasn't set up to be secure. It was, it was set up to be open. Yeah. I mean, your own staff was glad that they could just walk right in. I'm like, well, that's kind of the problem. They didn't have to go through weapon screening. And that's a good thing. That's an open government. But for us, you know, you can't just be able to walk in off the street and come all the way back to my office like you used to be able to do. And we have stop the steal rallies a block away. Yeah. And it wouldn't be hard to just point that down here at our office. So, Have you received death threats? I've gotten some vague ones. What are vague death threats? Oh, like you should, uh, you've committed sedition. Um, you know, there's a lot of that, but they're, they're just vague enough. They, you know, when you talk to the police, they're always like, it almost feels like a game of clue. Like they have to have an iron pipe in the billiards room or something. And they have to tell you the time they're going to attack you for them to listen to it. But that, that's been a problem for clerks around the country. Uh, but they're just vague enough that nothing happens with them. Do you worry about your safety? Do you worry about the safety of your colleagues? It's more like Russian roulette because it seems like something has to happen that ties to this place. Because mm-hmm. I remember one time the president tweeted about my office, but he didn't say anything negative, And it felt like it felt like a click in a chamber, like it just missed. Nothing happened. But then in another county or another place in the state, it'll all focus in on that person. There'll be some accusation of fraud that was either an innocent mistake or they don't understand how it works. So it just seems to be like it, it will congregate in a location. You don't know when it, or where it's going to be. Although you do know it's going to be in a swing state. Yeah. And it's going to be probably in the Democratic areas of those swing states. It's been kind of quiet. It's like a quiet before a storm is uh-huh. how it is right now. Because we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, typically, if, if they win, the ones the election deniers win, then it was fine. Right. That's how it works. And then if, if it's a close election, then suddenly they'll find problems with it and try to dispute it. That's, that seems to be the pattern now. This period we are now in is what Scott McDonald calls the quiet before the storm. Over the last several months, he and other county clerks and election officials have gone through specialized training courses for the first time ever. So they know what to do if someone wants to carry out on their threats. They've learned some skills that will hopefully help them de-escalate any situation that becomes dangerous. And they've learned how to do that in person. People are so incensed that they, these clerks are worried that firearms are going to come to the equation. Oh, yeah. I mean, Wisconsin, a lot of states in the Midwest are pretty heavily armed, so. Wow. Reasoning with an enraged person is not possible. Okay, so what does that mean? So what do you do? So you try to repeat back what they're upset about and try to like work with them on thing, you know, work with them on possible solutions that so is you, not telling them that they're wrong. 
that's kind of difficult, right? Because the essence of the, this is that they are wrong about what they think. Right. But what's frustrating to me and a lot of clerks is a lot of these um, citizens, they genuinely believe right. what they're saying. Right. They've been misled and they're upset and they think something's happening to their country. And so there is some sympathy for that because, you know, all of us are want to make sure the election is fair and free. And right. We kind of agree with their base concern. It's just that they've been lied to by grifters. Okay, so this is like escort them into an area where you're not in a group situation. Communicate the process. Never attempt to de-escalate a potentially violent situation without calling for backup. It says know how to signal for help from other staff without escalating the crisis. So do you have like a secret signal? Well, part of it now is having that plexiglass so they can't just waltz in here. That was same across the hall. Like it was so easy for people to just come in and jump a counter before. So number one is now at least we have a barrier, but we now we do have panic buttons all over now. That's a new feature from you have panic buttons. Oh yeah, I just I mean I just have to stop and note that like this is the county clerk's office and you have plexiglass and panic buttons. Like what has happened to American democracy? Yeah, it's not a good sign. There are people who these are people who are involved in the running of government and elections. Like this requires a totally different set of skills to manage a an incredibly stressful situation but then also resolve it. Like right. that's a lot to ask of a clerk. What is the general emotional like tenor of people who come here and are really angry? Like I would assume they're all like kind of Yeah, the, or do, to this office we didn't get we haven't gotten much of that. It yeah. was that the recount was really on full display. Yeah. They were uh, like they were closed arms, yeah. red faced, yelling, not listening. Uh, and honestly, what helped us was that the Trump lawyers just wanted to get out of there and go to the court. So they were helpful in, in de-escalation because they just were trying to get to un- invalidate thousands of our ballots and get to the Supreme Court. So the yelling wasn't really in their interest. Escalating behavior. Uh, change in voice, heavy heavy breathing, sneering or use of abusive language, glaring or avoiding eye contact. I mean, this is just all, this sounds terrifying, I have to say. Like, I am listening to this. I'm reading this thinking like that. I would just want to extricate myself from that situation. Do clerks say, hey, wait a second, I'm just not going to deal with this? I mean, if they're still working, are there any that are like, yeah, no, thank you. I'm not going to, I'll I'll just hand this off to someone else. I mean, I just can imagine wanting to just tap out. When- well, there's there's two things. Often, this doesn't happen very often. Yeah. So for most clerks, they're worrying about it, but they haven't had something too terrible. Maybe right. someone is a little bit angry or, but, the, you know, they, they get them when they have to pay their taxes or they get a reset. <laughs> so they, they get this in other areas. Um but the other, the other thing is they are so dedicated to their job. I mean, they love their job. They take it seriously, and they know it's important. How responsive has law enforcement been to your concerns about threats that you may be facing? Well, they've, they've been helpful. Um, I think part of the problem, though, is that they deal with people getting threatened all day long. Yeah. So when they hear, you know, I got a threat on email that from a Proton email that you can't trace, it's hard for them to do a lot about it. Uh, and for them, it's kind of common. But, you know, what I try to explain to them is, but it's meant to destabilize our democracy. Because if people leave who know what they're doing, who are they replaced by? Right. And then what happens? They make mistakes, and it just continues to fuel the cycle of, aha, we have a, a scandal. Ah, see, it's all messed up, or it's fraud. 
And that serves, again, the interest of raising money online or, or intimidating election officials. It is meant to destabilize our democracy. It's meant to fuel a cycle, scare the people who run the elections, force out the seasoned professionals, force changes to voting rules, make it harder to hold fair elections. To try and solve a part of this problem, some counties are increasing security for these officials to guard against threats. States across the country have been tapping into federal and state funds to protect election workers with physical safety measures ahead of Election Day. Wisconsin is no exception. Dane County budgeted $95,000 to design a more secure election center, complete with security gam- cameras, plexiglass, and a panic button. This is what that looks like. But yeah, so you, you can, can basically just walk in here. Well, and before, yeah, you could walk all the way back to my office. No problem. Because we would have 3,000 couples coming in here. Right, getting married. Yeah. And so then... Okay, so they would sit out here and we so, would take them back. And anybody can open this door right now, right? Now they can, yeah. Okay, so you open the door and then... But now now at least there's a block. Right, so you could... Before, you could just walk. So so this was open before. Yes. Yeah, that was just the counter. And we had that little swing doors to keep kids from running all the way to the back. Because people would have their little kids in here and stuff. (laughs) Because they would take off. So now... So when did you install this? Uh, Less than a year ago. And then you have cameras in here now, too. That just happened. They just got wired yesterday. In fact, I don't think these are on yet because they have to do something in a closet. And then there are panic buttons yes. throughout. Yeah, I mean, and can you lock the door remotely? Um, no. Although it does lock at four, but no. We do have the ability to just lock it like old school. But you physically have to go and do that. Yeah. And so... What, you know, what we would do is just exit that way. You can get out. There's another exit yeah. for you guys. Yep. And have you done drills? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then we're doing one when we have, we're doing one in a, another week where we eva- evacuate this place on election night. So how do we keep it going on election night? Because that would be an obvious thing to do. And, uh, you know. How do you keep the vote going? On oh, we can do it. We can keep it going. So we can, we can bug out of here. But were you exercising, like, you know, precautions and, like, drills prior to 2020 after that kind of stuff? We, we had plans, and we talked about it, and we had it set up. But now we, we reenact it. And like, we, there's definitely a higher level of um, wanting to make sure we know exactly how to do it and not be thinking about it. That was one of the things in the slide. Like, your body can't do what your mind hasn't thought. So they're getting trained in de-escalation. They are staging pre-election night drills. They have installed panic buttons in their offices. They are doing everything they can to try and protect their colleagues and make sure they can still do the job. But still, election workers across the country have left their positions. And those who remain are facing this frightening game of Russian roulette as they try to preserve the cornerstone of America's democracy. November 8th is Election Day. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. 
I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now, I don't need to go to Mars, because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then, I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. Here are a few of the things that Republicans have promised to do if they retake control of Congress in the midterm elections. They've promised that they will cut Medicare and Social Security. They have unveiled a bill that would increase prescription drug prices for seniors. They say they'll cancel popular infrastructure spending that got bipartisan approval in Congress. They say they will cut taxes, make the deeply unpopular Trump tax cuts permanent. And they are intending to get all of that by issuing threats to shut down the government and crash the world economy. Fortunately, we don't have to imagine what it would be like if Republicans get their way. Their economic vision has been lab tested over the last few weeks in a place called the United Kingdom. The country's new conservative prime minister, Liz Truss, implemented a radical economic plan of tax cuts and deregulation that was cheered on this side of the Atlantic by Republicans and pundits across Fox News. So how'd it go? It has been a night of astonishing scenes at Westminster with reports of jostling, manhandling, bullying and shouting outside the parliamentary lobbies in a supposed vote of confidence in the government. The deputy chief whip was reported to have left the scene saying, I'm absolutely effing furious. I just don't effing care anymore before he resigned along with the chief whip. But we've just been told they have now officially unresigned. The Home Secretary has, however, definitely gone. In short, it is total, absolute, abject chaos. That well, huh? Today, Liz Truss abruptly quit after just 44 days, making her the shortest-serving prime minister in UK history. In just 44 days, Truss managed to crater her country's economy, throw the entire government into chaos, and earn her party its worst approval ratings in history. But apparently that is the economic plan Republicans would like to roll out here. And if they manage to take over Congress, Americans do not have the option to kick them out after 44 days. We will be stuck with them for years. So if Democrats want to make sure that doesn't happen, what should they be doing in these final weeks of the midterm election campaign? This week, they're getting some advice from a former Democratic official. I think we do get into trouble. Look, I used to get into trouble whenever, as, as you know, you guys know well, whenever I got a little too professorial and, you know, started when I was behind a podium as opposed to when I was in a crowd, there were times where I'd get, you know, uh, you know, sound like I was given a bunch of policy gobbledygook. And that's not how people think about these issues. They, they think about them in terms of, you know, the life I'm leading day to day, how, how, how does politics even, how is it even relevant to, uh, you know, the things that I, I care most deeply about my family, my kids, you know, work that gives me satisfaction, uh, you know, having fun, 
you know, not, you know, not not being a buzzkill, right? Uh, <laughs> that's you know, a, that's so, a lesson for the Democratic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and sometimes Democrats are right. Yeah. It's it's like, you know, sometimes people just want to not feel as if uh, they are walking on eggshells, uh, and 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 they want some acknowledgement that life is messy and that all of us, at any given moment, uh, can you know. Uh, say things the wrong way, you know, make mistakes. And that attitude, I think, uh, of just being a little more real and a little more grounded is, is something that I think makes it goes a long way in, in counteracting what is a systematic, um, this, the, the systematic propaganda that I think is being pumped out by Fox News and all these other outlets all the time. Former President Obama is about to get back out on the campaign trail for Democratic candidates. But first, he sat down for that interview with my next guest. Joining us now is John Favreau, former speechwriter for President Obama and host of The Wilderness, a podcast about the history and future of the Democratic Party. He is also co-host of the little-known podcast Pod Save America, which this week featured a guest named Barack Obama. John, thank you for being here, my friend. I'm going to get right to it. The president in that clip that we just played is at one on one hand it's sort of explaining yeah. why he thinks uh, what the work democrats need to do but he's also kind of giving his thesis about why he thinks people support republicans and i wonder what you make of his words do you think that the fundamental problem here is one of messaging and not of substance and that it's really just about how democrats deliver the message I think it's both. I think that like people, what the president was talking about is that it's the same thing I heard when I talked to focus groups of voters all across the country. It's like they just don't think that politics is speaking to their lives or that anything's happening in government that's actually making their lives better. And everywhere you go, people are talking about the inflation. They're talking about the cost of living. They're talking about how they can't afford housing. And Sometimes Democrats, especially online Democrats, will try to like argue voters out of their feelings, right? And be like, well, you don't you understand democracy's at stake? And don't you understand there's bigger issues here? And what do you care about inflation? And what people want from their government is policies and politicians who will like fight for them, who will improve their lives. And I think that what the president, what President Obama was reminding us all is that like, if, if people don't think that government's fighting for them, if they don't think that their people that they're electing are fighting like hell for them, then they're going to tune out and they're not going to vote or they're going to vote for the other party. I just wonder, I mean, I'm sure the Biden White House is like agog at this idea that nobody understands what they've done on student debt, what they've done on climate, what they've done on COVID. I mean, does none of that resonate when you go out there and talk to people when the pre when you get the thoughts from President Obama? Does he think it's just been a failure of communication on some incredibly landmark legislation that's passed to help people in their normal, everyday, quotidian lives? Well, like, so let's take the Inflation Reduction Act, for example, right? So fantastic piece of legislation. It's going to lower the cost of prescription drugs. It's going to beef up Affordable Care Act subsidies to make health care more affordable. It's going to fight climate change, like biggest investment ever in climate change. Most of the effects of that bill are not going to take effect for a couple years. And so if people hear, oh, this bill was passed, it's going to lower the cost of prescription drugs, but then they go to the drugstore and the, the cost of their prescription drugs is the same and they're filling out their gas tank and it's too much money and they can't afford housing, like, 
all the messaging in the world is not going to fix the fact that they don't feel the effects of that legislation in their lives. What I did hear for some, from some people is like, I love the stimulus checks, but the stimulus checks were a year and a half ago, and I'm still struggling to pay rent or to or to make my mortgage or to pay my bills. And so I think the challenge is that like people are still struggling with high costs. And when they look to Washington, they don't see that anyone's doing anything about it. Now, I do think the Democrats can go out there and say, well, look, Republicans voted against all this stuff. If you put Republicans in charge, they are going to crash the economy unless they get cuts to Social Security and Medicare. That is what they've promised. So I do think you have to draw the economic contrast and 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 frame Republicans as the party that's going to fight for their rich friends and the Democrats as the party that's going to keep fighting for working people. Yeah, and they got a great example over in the UK, right? This is someone who's following through and executing right. on a lot of the same policy prescriptions, and it's been an abject failure. The thing that separates us from the UK is that the people in the UK, some of the leaders are actually admitting that was an abject failure, which you would never get from today's modern Republican Party. But I wonder if you think there is any acknowledgement, even privately, inside Republican circles that maybe they are headed in the wrong direction, given what has played out in the UK. I think back to Brexit and the way that that was kind of the canary in the coal mine for a lot of people who never thought Trump could win. And it was like, look at what's happening across the pond. It is an indicator of what's coming over here. Do you think we've learned our lesson in terms of looking at the global uh, Petri dish as a lab uh, for different political ideas? I don't think Republicans have learned their lesson at all because while they know that when they're campaigning, they should like gin up culture war issues to divide people, every time they take power, every time, whether it's Congress or the presidency, what do they do? They try to cut taxes for the rich and they try to gut Social Security, Medicare, healthcare programs, right? Which is what they always do. And you know, you saw this play out over the last couple of weeks that you mentioned earlier, like they've already said, well, Joe Biden's gonna be the president if we take Congress, so we're not gonna be able to get any legislation passed, but we're gonna use the debt ceiling, we're gonna hold the global economy hostage to make sure we get cuts to Medicare, Social Security, maybe get a huge, another huge tax break for the rich, extend the Trump tax cuts, and do all this stuff that's really, really unpopular with voters, but they cannot help themselves because this is like their core economic philosophy. It's all they have. And they're just going to make inflation worse by giving a bunch of tax cuts out to rich people who are going to spend more money. I just I wonder whether Democrats have not made enough hay about that, given the comments, you know, Kevin McCarthy literally no, we saying <laughs> we're going to hold the global economy hostage to give the wealthy more money. Bernie Sanders has been really vocal. Uh, he's out on the campaign trail doing his own stump campaign. And he's saying, look, we, we cannot just focus on reproductive choice as the issue for the midterms. We've got to be stronger on an economic message. And I, I sense that you would agree with Sanders on that. Yeah, look, we, we talked about this on, on the pod today. Like, I don't think it's an either or, right? Like campaigns, they have, they run plenty of ads. There's a stump speech. You can talk about both. Like you have to talk about reproductive rights, um, both for the moral reasons, but also because it's also politically popular to protect abortion access in America. But the closing argument also has to include this economic case. It has to include the fact that Republicans, if they get power, are going to trash the global economy so they can help the rich and they're going to screw over working people like they've done before. It is the best contrast Democrats have. It happens to be the truth. And I really do think the Democratic 
Democratic candidates need to hammer that home every single day between now and Election Day. Do you think that's going to be Obama's message? He's going out on the trail. I will note, not as much as Biden is going out on the trail. What do you make of that? And also, was the podium really the problem in terms of Obama sounding too professorial? I mean, that's what he thinks. Yeah, it was the uh, it was the podium. <laughs> no, he could he will admit that too. He can sound professorial because he can be professorial. But um, no, I do think that will be the core of Obama's message without without knowing what his stump speech is going to be yet. But just having talked to him in that interview, like I do think we asked him earlier a question about Donald Trump. And he said sometimes I think we get into like you know. Donald Trump says something crazy and we're all like, oh, look at how crazy that is. And we think that's going to be enough for voters to vote for Democrats or vote against Republicans. And in reality, you have to talk about the issues that people care about that matter to their lives, whether that's economic issues, whether that's abortion access, whether that's gun violence. It has to be issues that really affect people and not sort of esoteric topics or just talking about or just attacking other politicians. Like you have to talk about the issues. My favorite part of the interview is when he says, basically, people vote for Republicans because they're not a buzzkill. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, it was interesting to hear him say that because I do think that, and, you know, he, he, he's, he started that answer by saying, like, we have made all this progress, especially in the last several years, whether it's the Me Too movement, whether it's Black Lives Matter. And there's a lot of change going on in this country. And I think the point he was trying to make is, when people aren't there yet, when voters aren't there yet, you have to give them space to come along. Doesn't mean you have to sacrifice your values. Doesn't mean you have to compromise your principles. But you have to allow people space to grow and learn from their mistakes, or say something wrong once in a while, and then and then grow and learn from it. And I don't think Democratic politicians necessarily do that. But I think you know the larger discussion, the national debate, can sometimes go to that place. And I think what Barack Obama was trying to say is, you know, like he 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 won the presidency. Twice twice by uh, by being open to trying to bring a lot of people along. Sometimes people just want to not feel as if they are walking on eggshells. So spoketh former President Barack Obama. John Favreau, former Obama speechwriter and host of the podcast, The Wilderness, also Pod Save America. John, it's always great to see you. Thank you for your time and wisdom this evening. You too, Alex. Thanks for having me. We have much more ahead this hour. Just week, there have been horrific reports on what some women in this country have had to endure because of the abortion bans in their home states. Cecile Richards, former president of Planned Parenthood, will join me live here in studio to talk about just that and the politics over abortion rights ahead of the midterms. That's coming up. But next, news of Donald Trump's legal issues continues to come in as we wait on his subpoena from the January 6th committee. Stay with us. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug. But I ended up connecting to the world around me. A world where each sunset was painted. Where I felt adventures pulse with every step. And where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. 
I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. It seems like decades ago, but back in 2018, Trump was in his second year in office. It also just so happened to be the second year of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into the president and his campaign's dealings with Russia. And the big question everyone had at the time was, would Trump sit for an interview with Mueller? Trump said multiple times he was looking forward to sitting down with Mueller and that he would, quote, love to do it as soon as possible. But we all know what actually happened. Did the president refuse the request to be interviewed by you and your team? Yes. Yes. And is it true that you tried for more than a year to secure an interview with the president? Yes. And is it true that you and your team advised the president's lawyer that, quote, an interview with the president is vital to our investigation? Close yes. quote. Yes. And is it true that you also, st- quote, stated that it is in the interest of the presidency and the public for an interview to take place? Close quote. Yes. But the president still refused to sit for an interview by you or your team? True. After more than a year of trying, Donald Trump refused to sit down with the special counsel. And now, amid the myriad investigations into the former president, we seem to be having a bit of deja vu. A week ago, the January 6th committee voted to subpoena Trump for his testimony. And while we wait for the committee to formally serve that subpoena, according to reports, Donald Trump has told allies that he is absolutely willing to testify to the committee, but only if that testimony is public. Politico also reports today that Trump has hired a separate law firm that also represents Mike Flynn to specifically deal with the subpoena. Now, over in one of the Justice Department's investigations into the president, this one being the Mar-a-Lago documents fiasco, well, sources close to Trump tell CNN that the former president is considering a more cooperative approach in that matter by allowing federal agents to search his property again. This reportedly because the Justice Department thinks there might still be more government records at his Palm Beach Club, ones that Trump has refused to hand over. But if past is prologue, we know what happens after these reports of Trump willing to cooperate. We know how they end. Don't hold your breath. Here is the lead from the Springfield News Leader in Missouri. At 6.30 a.m. on August 2nd, nearly 18 weeks into her pregnancy, Melissa Farmer experienced what doctors call a preterm premature rupture of membranes. Her water broke before labor. The doctors recommended terminating the pregnancy, but 39 days after the state of Missouri banned abortions, that wasn't an option, at least not in Missouri. Instead, Farmer was left to make a series of trips across three states and countless phone calls. In the end, Farmer would risk her own life as she traveled to Illinois for a life-saving abortion. Here's another story from the Wall Street Journal out of Tennessee. The patient was in her second trimester of pregnancy, and her unborn baby had been diagnosed with genetic abnormalities that meant the child wasn't expected to survive. The doctor said she thought the patient needed an abortion, but Tennessee has a total ban on the procedure. The doctor decided to send the woman on a roughly six-hour ambulance ride to end her pregnancy in North Carolina, where she arrived with dangerously high blood pressure and signs of kidney failure, the doctor said. She kept asking if she was going to die, the doctor said. I kept saying, I'm trying, I'm trying, we're going to make it happen. We just need to get you to the right place where you can be taken care of. Thankfully, she got to the right place and she survived. And then there's Amanda Zerovsky from Texas, who recently spoke to the news outlet Meteor. 
Amanda was 18 weeks pregnant when doctors informed her that a miscarriage was inevitable. I couldn't make the decision for myself. We couldn't make the decision for our daughter. Our doctors couldn't make the decision. I mean, they were just as furious as we were because their hands were tied. I mean, had they acted, they would have been charged with a felony. I was left, you know, wanting either to get so sick that my life is at risk or that my baby's heart stopped beating so that it could be over. Three days later, Amanda was admitted to the hospital with a 102-degree fever. She was diagnosed with sepsis and nearly lost her life, but was finally able to terminate her pregnancy under Texas law that allows the procedure to save the life of the mother. This is the reality right now for women in the United States. So much of the conversation heading into this election has focused on what Republicans will do or could do if they gain power. But right now we have real-world examples of women whose lives are very much at risk from Republican abortion bans. With the election less than three weeks away and polls tightening, how, how does this horrifying new reality affect what happens in November? Does it? Joining us now is Cecile Richards, former president of Planned Parenthood Federation of America and the co-chair of American Bridge. Cecile, thanks for joining me. Good to see you, Alex. Yeah, I wish it was, I wish we didn't have to talk about this, which is a day I think a lot of us never thought, I mean, I never thought it would come. And yet the, the stories have come so quickly, the horror stories. Yep. Do you think that there is a broad enough awareness of, of the terror and the fear and the life-threatening situations that women across this country are being put in every day? I mean, there's no way there could be enough exposure to these stories. And, you know, actually, Amanda, the woman that you just um, profiled from Texas, she and her husband have been so forthright. And she even herself said, you know, you're hearing my story, but I had good health care. I had a supportive family, you know, and she, I think what terrifies me too is the stories we're not hearing, right? right. It is like the, you know, we know millions of people in this country do not have access to adequate health care, do not have um, situations where they can drive to another state. Um, and of course, uh, I think the other thing that's so horrifying about my home state of Texas is that a doctor couldn't even have helped her, um, you know, get out of state. Um, that's how the situation, you know, she arrived in the situation where literally she almost died. That is horrific. And that was the precursor to her getting the abortion. It's almost as exactly. if the state wants to make the situation so unbearable and so life threatening that that is the only recourse women have is to get an abortion. Do you know what I mean? They, they, they right. have to get that sick. They have to have their lives in danger in order to get this procedure that they should have been able to access days prior. Well, and of course, her story, I mean, is, is this like the stories I'm hearing around the country. They had tried 18 months uh, with fertility treatments to get pregnant. I mean, this was a very much wanted pregnancy, but obviously it was complicated. And that's what I'm hearing from women across America. They are terrified of getting pregnant in states with abortion bans. I, I spoke to a woman in Dallas the other day. She said her daughter is trying to get pregnant. She said, uh, I'm terrified about this. Uh, I'm terrified she's going to get, you know, there's going to be a complication. And she says, and all I want is a healthy grandbaby. You know, why is politics uh, in the middle of my daughter's effort 
to have a child. Wait, that's another factor in all of this. It's just the crapshoot that is pregnancy. Some pregnancies just go horribly awry. And the psychological, emotional pain of that is something that is incalculable. And then you layer on the inability to get the necessary medical treatment. And it's, I mean, it's unfathomable to have to go through that. But I wonder, Cecile, you know, you're a creature of politics. Why is the polling tightening? Why is the polling tightening with independent women? In September, independent women favored Democrats by 14 points. Now, independent women back Republicans by 18 points. What do you think is happening there? Well, I I won't talk about that particular poll because I think it's an outlier. Um, These races are tightening, that's for sure. But actually, what I think is interesting is we are actually bucking historical trends. There are so many races, frankly, that Democrats are competitive in right now that um, I think if if we were to look at what would happen in other years, it wouldn't have, we wouldn't be competitive. And I think it is because of the abortion issue. We've seen a surge in women registering to vote. Of course, in a midterm election, it is all about who turns out. We've seen young people uh, registering to vote. We saw in Kansas, of course, you know, unbelievable turnout, completely unexpected, um, won that uh, or beat back the ballot initiative uh, by 18 points in a state that is majority Republican state. So I I actually feel like uh, this isn't the only issue in the election, of course, but I do think it is a motivating issue for a lot of voters who otherwise may be staying home. Do you think that Democrats need to like sort of fold abortion into the broader health concerns and health care concerns that Americans have just because 2018 was such a landmark election for Democrats, right? And the message there was really focused. It was on health care. It was about Republicans wanting to get rid of coverage for people with pre-existing conditions. It was about the ACA. The Biden administration and Democrats have done a lot to shore up coverage holes, to help people negotiate or to help uh, the negotiation of prescription drug prices. There's a number of things in the healthcare sphere that they have made real progress on. And yet healthcare and abortion are often seen as two separate conversations, or yeah. at least as we've seen it in midterm messaging. Right. I mean, I think in the political realm, it may be, but not in people's lives. Yeah. I mean, it is absolutely a healthcare issue. And that's why I think we are seeing, again, independents, Republicans saying this is actually such a deeply personal issue, pregnancy. And as you said, a lot of pregnancies are complicated. The last thing we need is government in our lives. It's why you see the Republicans not talking about this issue anywhere. This is the most unpopular thing that they've ever done. And I think it's going to not only impact this election, I think it's going to impact the presidential election this year. Because these stories, the ones you just showed, they're not going away. It's going to get worse. People are going to be having their own experiences. And I think what I'm grateful is that people are willing to share just what it's like, because this is not right. This is not America. Um, this is this is anti-freedom. Um, and I feel like it's it is going to have a it's going to have a huge impact in this country. Yeah. If there's a silver lining, it's that women are finally talking about their own personal traumas when it comes to preg- pregnancy and reproduction. And men are as well. And men are as well, because That's it is right. shared trauma. It takes two to tango also. Men. That's right. Correct. Cecile Richards, Cecile Richards, <laughs> as if I could forget your last name, uh, co-chair of American Bridge. It's always a pleasure to see you. Thanks it's so for good to see you. Set, Cecile. We have one more story to get to tonight. The latest from Ron DeSantis' Florida. We're talking about race and gender can now end your career. Stay with us. Since he took office in 2019, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has made it a priority to refashion the Florida public school system according to right-wing conservative principles and honestly, right-wing nonsense talking points. 
You've probably heard of DeSantis's two signature bills on this front, the so-called Don't Say Gay bill, which restricts teaching anything that could be deemed related to sexual or gender identity from kindergarten to third grade. And there's the so-called Stop Woke Act, which bans the teaching of any lesson specifically about race and racism that makes any student feel discomfort. Both laws are incredibly ambiguous. What counts as teaching something related to sexual or gender identity? Does just existing as an out gay teacher count? Would learning about the work of Martin Luther King violate the Stop Woke Act if a single child felt uncomfortable during that lesson? All of that has been unclear from the start, as has what the punishment would be for violating these acts. But yesterday, both of those laws got their teeth. Yesterday, the DeSantis-appointed State Board of Education voted unanimously on a rule change that makes violation of the Don't Say Gay Bill and the Stop Woke Act punishable. Quote, violation of any of these principles shall subject the individual to revocation or suspension of the individual educator's certificate. Without that certificate, you cannot teach at public schools in the state of Florida. So as of yesterday, anyone can file a complaint against any Florida public school teacher for anything they deem as indoctrinating their children about race or gender. And that complaint could ultimately cost that teacher not just their job, but their ability to teach at public schools in the state of Florida, period. That does it for us tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug. But I ended up connecting to the world around me. A world where each sunset was painted. Where I felt adventures pulse with every step. And where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota. So little time.